0: Race for mayor enters a critical stretch. I'm Jared Murphy from citylimits.org.
1: And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jared, how are you doing today?
0: Doing all right. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Rest in peace, Bobby Sands. How are you? Indeed, indeed. I'm doing okay. You
1: know, the flood of... uh of information around uh, both the election cycle and what's happening in government and society um, is really something. But, um, you know, that's why we get paid the big bucks to sort it all out and process it all and, uh, and, <laughs> and figure yourself. out what matters and what doesn't matter. But um, – yeah, we're in the home stretch here. I mean, this is, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we've basically now in May, you know, we've sort of moved into the next to last phase of the election. You know, we're still not quite in crunch time, prime time, which I still think doesn't really happen until we hit June after Memorial Day weekend. But, you know, this this month of May is where stuff really starts to get serious. You have the first televised official debate coming up a week from tomorrow. You have, um, you know, candidates really starting to spend money on advertising and, uh, you know, a flood of endorsements and announcements and policies and, of course, unknowns and, and surprises uh, coming out as well
0: certainly in the Merrill uh, race as it moves into that critical phase will be the exclusive focus of our show today. We'll be joined by David Friedlander a writer for New York Magazine and author of the new book The AOC Generation. who will be talking about his coverage of controller and Merrill candidate Scott Stringer in recent days and Sally Goldenberg, free, frequent guest of the show, the political New York uh, City Hall Bureau chief discussing uh, what she's been seeing on the campaign trail. But certainly as you said Ben, big dates coming up in terms of debates, also some key dates for campaign finance, which of course is what fuels the beast. And all of that comes against the backdrop of the city and state and apparently the neighboring states being on track uh, for a reopening uh, on May 19th, with the subway opening two days before that. And it would be interesting in this, after a year in which this campaign has played out uh, largely virtually, to see how campaigns do or don't capitalize on the opportunity to you know, talk to crowds visit places, do more face-to-face campaigning. That's kind of an interesting X factor that has now been introduced into this already very interesting race.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think, you know, candidates uh, have been getting out more and more. People are feeling a bit more safe as the weather warms, as the vaccination uh, unfolds and is implemented. More and more people are vaccinated. You know, even before there was a vaccine last year when the weather warmed and we came out of the awful, awful first crushing wave of COVID, you know, things were much, much better in the late spring and and summer. And so now with vaccination and a lot more people, you know, knowing uh, how to be more careful and and all that, you know, we're expecting things to really open up here and it coincides with this, um, you know, last couple months, even less so of this race that's leading to the June 22nd primary day. Um, so I think it's going to be a very intense uh, next six, seven weeks here. There's a Republican primary among just two candidates, uh, Fernando Mateo and Curtis Sliwa. So that shouldn't be ignored. If you're a registered Republican or you're uh, not registered to vote at all and you want to vote in the Republican primary, then you still have time to register and register as a Republican and, and vote there. And, of course, the Democratic contest, which is, you know, getting the bulk of the attention because the winner of that primary in a heavily, heavily Democratic city is very likely. To be the next mayor, uh, and that's really got basically eight leading candidates that we've talked to, uh, almost all of them on the show and, and in other ways. And um, you know, we're we're getting into that period where they're going to be everywhere on your airwaves, on your on your TV, on your digital, on your social media with their ads, and then you know, uh, people will be seeing them out and about as as New Yorkers are getting more out there, and the candidates and their volunteers are getting out there. It's going to be a pretty intense uh, period here, I, I guess. You know, one of the biggest questions I have, and I don't know what your gauge on this says, is, you know, when, when does the sort of attention of the, of the city and maybe that's just the maybe 800,000 to a million people who will vote um, in the Democratic primary. You know, when does the attention of, of those people in the city really turn to this race? Um, and like I said, maybe that won't be till after Memorial Day.
0: Well, that is that is the huge question, I think. You know, recently The New York Times posed it is that this race has been going on furiously. People like you and me have been covering it <laughs> fairly intensely for the better part of a year. Um, but it does not seem to have penetrated and and I think the sense is that even compared to past city races, given the import of this of this open seat election in this critical year, that there just hasn't been that kind of attention. And of course, there are plenty of reasons for it coming out of the, you know, furious 2020 presidential campaign, uh, COVID obviously being a huge factor, the fact that we have a June primary for city offices for the first time in a couple of generations all playing into that. But that is the, the big question, when people will tune in. And I think, you know, what you mentioned earlier, the fact that candidates are are only now really starting to get up on the airwaves because, let's face it, that's how a lot of people are reminded that there is a race when they hear on the radio or, more importantly, see on television ads for candidates and that is beginning to occur. And that, I think, will help to, you know, at least people make make people aware of the race. And, and you know, we'll see, obviously, who, who actually turns up to vote, which has been fairly low in recent years. What do you feel is, is your sense of the state of the race? We know we've talked about where, you know, where we are in the calendar. We've talked about the question of general interest, but in terms of the horse race, uh, what is your sense of where we are? My sense of where we are, I think, you know, I could, I could
1: probably go into a million different different avenues here, and we'll go into many of them over the course of the next forty-five minutes. But to boil it down very briefly, my sense of the race is that a, it's extremely wide open still, and b, Andrew Yang and Eric Adams are probably more likely to win than anybody else at this point, but... C, C (laughs) C-A, which is that (laughs) this is wide open. I think, you know, I think every poll that we've seen has shown Yang and Adams with more strength than everybody else. Um, but undecided is often leading both of them. And it's not, it has not been that clear how strong even, you know, the support for Yang and Adams has been in that polling. Um, we haven't seen, you know, one of the big pollsters come out with a poll yet. That's Quinnipiac, Siena, Marist. Um, I'm expecting, something from one of them sometime soon but um, you know the polling we've seen has basically shown that we will get into the Scott Stringer situation with allegations of sexual harassment and abuse from uh, 20 years ago that re- just surfaced Uh from a complaint by a former campaign volunteer and and seemingly political associate of stringers Gene kim we'll get into that soon so that throws his stature into question as someone who is right there in that in that top tier but that's generally how i see it i think um you know you could start to chart a, a path to victory if if things break right for a few other candidates and then there's a few others who it's a big big long shot i think but um you know you never say never what what about you
0: I think I probably uh, would uh, endorse that view, that Yang and Adams seem to be in control of the race as much as anyone is. All the polls have showed a a high percentage of undecideds. Ranked choice voting obviously throws a wrench uh, into the dynamic in terms of predicting this race. And obviously, the Stringer situation is indicative of the kind of surprises that can come last minute. And let's face it, as I think uh, David Friedlander mentioned in his Scott Stringer uh, article that came out this week, they're could be other surprises coming down the pipe, too. We don't know about either about the candidates or some other event that certainly has happened in the past. I'm always reminded of the fact that, you know, September 11th, 2001 was the Democratic mayoral primary day. And obviously, yeah. that day shaped it very differently than the campaigns or anyone in the world was um, was planning. And I think one thing I'd say, Ben, and I think we'll probably discuss this next week, too, is that, you know, there's always a question of what role debates play in any campaign, um, presidential races and others you know, whether it's just something for the media to talk about, or whether it could be important. I get the sense this debate coming up next Thursday, for the Democratic mayoral candidates, um, the one for Republicans will be sometime after that, is really important, because I think you have um, candidates who at this point have been in forums, where they more or less get to sort of, you know, deliver um, set piece speeches, um, more or less sound bites certainly they have to think on their feet a little bit, but in a, in a high-pressure debate um, where, you know, there can be back and forth and a lot of follow-ups, um, it gets a little more intense. And also we're in a stage now where the candidates are being more open about taking shots at each other. It'll be interesting to see how candidates fare, especially those who, you know, have not been in that citywide televised deb- debate uh, forum before, which is just about everybody it's except just about for Scott everybody. Stringer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Andrew Yang has been on big debate stage before, but never as a frontrunner. Um, Eric Adams has certainly been in plenty of political debates, but I don't think ever with this exposure and never, you know, with someone who is considered uh, perhaps a co-front runner of the race. So I think, you know, maybe not the entire 90 minutes of that debate, however long it's going to be, but there always is the chance for that kind of telling um, or at least highly um, referenced uh, exchange or or phrase, whether it is good or bad, that can really define the next period of the campaign.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, some of what you said I agree with and maybe a little bit I, I disagree with. I, you know, I, I think for this first debate that's going to be on May what 13th, you know, I think my sense is that there won't be that many more people watching it than have been tuning into a lot of the Zooms and, you know, collect maybe all those people are sort of collectively watching and it makes for a pretty big audience. But, um, you know, like I said, I don't know how much public attention is going to turn to this race still for a little while, but I do think that it's absolutely, you know, opportunity for the, you know, whatever a number of undecideds may be in that group that does tune in. And again, I think it's a fairly large group of people who are, you know, paying attention at this point. And then maybe you add in a, you know, a few uh, additional tens of thousands of people who this is their first dabble into the, into the race. But, um, you know, I think, I think it will be a clarifying moment and I think anything can happen in those types of scenarios. So you could see somebody, you know, emerge with a new media narrative around their candidacy. You could see somebody really struggle to articulate themselves on an issue or to fend off attacks. You know, you could see all sorts of things that could, you know, change the course of, of some of the narrative around the race or people's impressions of some of the candidates. You know, there's a decent chance when you go into that debate and we'll do more preview of next Thursday's debate next Wednesday, but you know, that you'll, you'll really see people trying to go after both Yang and Adams as the perceived front runners. Um, and that could be, you know, that could be very interesting to see how candidates are differentiating themselves. But I do think this is an important moment to note that ranked choice voting is at play in this election. It's always good to remind folks listening of that. You get to rank your preferences uh, in this Democratic primary if you're voting in it uh, from one to five, if you so choose. You don't have to rank more than one, but you should strategically. And uh, and that, you know, that definitely is impacting some of how the candidates are campaigning. campaigning but I'm not sure. How much? Um, so, you know, it, it's going to be a fascinating event for for sure, and I think there will actually probably be some really interesting things between now and then to uh, to pay attention to.
0: Well, speaking of one candidate who has been differentiated from the group um, over the past week, probably in ways he would not have chosen, uh, let's bring on our first guest, and that is David Friedlander, a writer for New York Magazine and author of the new book, The AOC Generation. David, welcome to Max and Murphy.
2: Thanks you for
3: having me. Great to be here.
0: Uh, so take us back. It was only a week ago um, that um, that the kind of full story of these accusations against Scott Stringer came out. Some early word had emerged the night before on Tuesday, the 27th. But take us back to the state of the race as it concerned Scott Stringer last Tuesday before this happened. Uh, where was he in the race? Um, what were his prospects looking like at that point?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, his prospects, I think, were not great, not not how he would have liked them to be. Um, you know, he's somebody who's been sort of planning for this moment for the past 40 years or so. Um, and, you know, he kind of struggled to break out. He was kind of in, in the low single digits. I'm um, sorry, the low double digits, um, you know, but had a lot of endorsements. Um, and then it, it seemed as if he would kind of turn a corner uh, in a way. Uh, he got the Working Families endorsement which he had really sought. He got the teachers union endorsement, which he had really sought. He was up on the air with his first ad. He had a ton of money uh, in the bank. And it looked like they were going to really, you know, make a play uh, to sort of go after Andrew Yang and Eric Adams. But then this just kind of came out of the blue, as you said. Um, I, think, I guess Monday night, we sort of first all started getting word about it. And it's, it's it just, you know, he's been on a tailspin ever since.
0: And just to stay with that for a moment, why do you think, you know, Stringer, as you said, had he was a citywide official, he a ton of money, been running for this office effectively for years. Why do you think he was sort of underperforming for much of this year? And what do you think was leading to him turning that corner? Because I wonder if any of those dynamics are sort of still in play now.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Scott Stringer is someone who was always a kind of mainstream liberal Democrat, you know, who sort of moved sharply left, kind of, you know, in the Trump era, um, got behind a bunch of anti-establishment, far left candidates as, as they took on the political establishment. Um, and, and I think many in this sort of the political class felt like he betrayed them. Um, that said, I think in many ways it was a pretty clever move. He's a 60-year-old uh, white guy um, and, and in, in, in a, in a uh, you know running in a city that's about 40% white, and probably about I would say about three quarters of that vote is is you know, whatever you would sort of consider to be progressive. And so he was kind of making an effort to kind of consolidate that vote, and I think he kind of did so very cleverly in a lot of ways. Um, the problem. It was sort of twofold. For one, and I think for some voters you know, within that block, there was a sort of inauthent- you know, inauthenticness to his sharp turn to the left. And then secondly, even as you consolidate that block, it's still kind of not enough to win citywide. Um, and so I think that's why he was kind of struggling to you know, get out of that kind of where he was, which is kind of between the first tier and the second tier, as it were.
0: So we want to talk about the political follow-up, political dimensions of what's happened to Stringer over the past week. But yesterday, I was struck by kind of an interesting sequence of events. You had um, the attorney for Jean Kim telling us late in the morning that she had filed a formal complaint with the New York State Attorney General. The Intercept coming out with a story at midday in which they said that there were some, you know, fairly important inconsistencies in Jean Kim's story, although they were careful to say that those did not refute the heart of her allegations and then late in the day uh citizen action another organization that had endorsed scott stringer uh pulling its endorsement from him and i guess for me it all raised the question of are we going to find out some definitive facts in this case about these allegations before primary day and and even if we do are, are they going to matter
3: I mean, I think, you know, we're all in an uncomfortable situation here. Um, and it's not one that is, you know, any of us want to be in, where we have to sort of evaluate in some ways this you know truth claim from something that happened 20 years ago and do it 50 days before the election um, I think it's certainly fair to say that there are we, we will never know uh, what happened between them um, you know we also know that uh, women t- tend to not come forward with false accusations very often
2: mm-hmm. we also
3: know that this is a highly charged political environment and there's only 50 or so days to go um, or whatever Whatever it is. And, and that, you know, there's certainly a lot of questions in her in her story and in the way it was presented, um, including in the fact that, you know, when she made that allegation, it was kind of in a political context. I mean, she she was in front of his office. There were people holding signs that said resign or, you know, drop out or that kind of thing, which is very um you know, it's unusual for as we sort of seen these stories come to fruition uh, over the last, um, you know, few years, right? That they tend to not people tend to not kind of do like a rah-rah political thing along alongside of them, which which she kind of did, in which that you know, whatever she did forwarding the complaint to the Attorney General, I, mean, I think a lot of folks read that as an kind of an effort to keep the allegation in the news in a way. It's, you know, something that be outside of, of It's hard to know what the, Attorney Baird be investigating, uh, and that kind of thing. All that having said, I mean, I think, you know, you'd you, 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 quite right. Um, it's, not, it's, it's, it's unclear if any of this would really matter. Um, you know, if, if you were to sort of pull enough holes or story to somehow come to a conclusion, or if it would be, you know, proven correct or incorrect. I mean, there's a sort of political reality to this um, that... that that sort of trumps all of the, you know, whatever happened in a taxi cab or whatever is alleged 20 years ago.
0: And I think also there's another dimension to it, too, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that it's my impression that some of the people who have pulled back from Stringer, uh, individual elected officials and organizations over the past week, may not necessarily be reacting to their belief in the truth um, or merit of the accusations themselves, but kind of a reaction to how Stringer has reacted. Um, There was certainly some critique of, you know, how he handled the press conference with, you know, having his his wife speak uh, at that event, um, how his team has gone after Ms. Kim's motivations. Do you get that sense, too, that part of this is a reflection on how Stringer uh, uh, kind of retorted and, and reacted?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think people found his response to be uh, distasteful. And I think he reminded folks that he was, you know, uh, sort of a, an odd fit anyway with this younger more progressive cohort that he cultivated as his base, um, who were really looking to put forward, I think, in this uh, mayoral election, someone who's not a six-year-old white man. And so, you know, I think they were sort of viewing his troubles as a way to – get out of that bind in a way and, and, and possibly go support someone else. I mean, you know, in in the Stringer's defense and in his campaign's defense, I mean, they say these allegations are completely false. They're fiction and, and they're and they're sort of fighting back to prove that But I'm and they also say that they, that Miss um, Kim has these, you know, political ties, which make it seem like it's a political hit. Um, but, I, you know, because she she worked for uh, Elliot Spitzer after she. Uh, didn't get a job with Scott Crinner's 2013 control- controller campaign. She work for Spitzer, was ranked right against him. She carried petitions for Andrew Yang. Um, I think that Intercept story had that she donated money to Maya Wiley, uh, which 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 had surprised me. I, I hadn't seen that elsewhere. Um, and, and, and so, but they haven't really gone after that in a way. They sort of gone after the the the, 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 um, the sort of piece of the allegation, the facts of the allegation, rather than sort of trying to to sort of describe it as a sort of political operation. And I think that, yeah, that was really the part that, you know, folks found just a little distasteful.
0: Mm -hmm. Obviously, when something like this comes up, one's mind drifts back to 2013 and the Anthony Weiner campaign. uh, And you mentioned that in your excellent article this week. Um, To what extent does that provide a sort of relevant historical parallel or do you think there are like important differences between the two cases <laughs>
3: Well, you know, I think. I mean, one thing that's important to remember about about Weiner, right? It was it was like before we had that phrase "me too," and before there was mm-hmm. sort of widespread awareness. Of, I think about about some of these issues. And you know what Weiner did? I mean, he, he led that race the entire time uh, until he got to like his second or third sex scandal, and then it, and then it ended. But what he did was he had all this attention on him, and he used that attention to sort of talk about the things that mattered. To most new yorkers you know if you ask him about his sex scandal he would say i'm here talking about the middle class and how people want to fight the end into it and he said that over and over and over again um and he laid out a kind of expansive agenda agenda for what his role as his mayor uh, could be and i think you're going to see and you have seen scottinger very much doing the same thing i mean he is been, gotten more press attention than he's ever gotten before in, in this race, and he's really using it, I think, to talk about what kind of mayor he will be. Um, that said, I, I think there are some differences mainly in that, you know, as we said at the beginning, I mean, Stringer was always kind of confined by this relatively small base of his. And relatively small base, it should be said, really, really cares about these kinds of issues. They've now come up for Scott Stringer. Um, And, and of course, the other difference is that, you know, Wiener was winning that race when he imploded. You know, Schroeder has – I've not seen a poll that has him uh, above third. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it's it's just a little bit different in terms of how it's all going to play out.
0: So speaking of that, for a while now, there's been this idea that like progressives, through the mechanism of ranked choice voting, would eventually coalesce around one candidate, um, you know, Maya Wiley, Diana Morales, or Scott Stringer. And I guess to some degree, we're kind of testing that now, um, where Stringer's support might start going elsewhere, even before people are making out their ballots, and before we get to a second or third round of counting. But your article raises some interesting questions about who would get that support. Who do you think better? Benefits from Stringer's uh, apparent demise.
3: Well, I think there's sort of three scenarios. I mean, I think the first one is that it's it, it, a lot of his vote sort of migrates to Maya Wiley. So she's the other kind of mainstream left progressive uh, in the race. Um, she's going kind of to struggle to vault past Stringer, but he's been competing over a lot of the same voters. So you can really see it going to, to her. Um, but I also think there's a scenario where a lot of it ends up going to Eric Adams. Um, you know, the sort of political establishment in, in this town, uh, such as it is, has kind of started to get behind Adams in a real way. I mean, he was securing, you know, the big three or four labor union endorsements uh, that you need. I wonder if you're going to see some of those kind of institutional players who have been backing Stringer sort of migrate over to Adams. I mean, these aren't sort of like progressive and good government groups, but just like the unions, uh, elected officials, you know, folks like that. And then I think there's a third option, which is just that this... just kind of upsets the chessboard, and, you know, it it kind of creates space for someone who has had, you know, struggled to sort of get momentum in this race, maybe Captain Garcia or or Sean Donovan or just anyone, and, and the whole thing kind of gets scrambled up a bit.
0: So last question, uh, before we totally write off the candidate at the heart of this, uh, is there any path for Scott Stringer to win the race? You mentioned, uh, obviously, he has a lot of money. He's been planning for this for most of his apparent, apparently for most of his political career. Unlikely, he'll drop out. But is there a way for him to win?
3: I think. It's very, very hard. I think that in their um, campaign's private moments, they would tell you that it's going to be very, very hard. Um, I think a couple sort of things they have going for them or they're counting on, um, look, this came out of the blue. I mean, none of us on Monday saw this coming from a mile away. So who's to say what else is coming for any of the other... Candidates, you know, top tier, bottom tier, whatever. Um, you know, we have seven weeks to go here. Uh, it's a New York City mayor's race. Anything can happen. So I think I think they're counting on that. I think they're counting on um, money, and then I think they're kind of counting on. In my conversations with some of them, is that you know that there's the, 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 this allegation is sort of thin enough um, that will that it'll generate a backlash to. The kind of whole me-too movement, in a way, uh, especially among older voters, and that um, they feel like that'll be a new kind of, you know, pool they can swim in, so to speak. I mean, I think I think that, that it's a little hard to see that because those voters wouldn't have necessarily been sold on Scott Stringer so far. It's hard to see why now they would be sold. But I mean, if you, you, it's the only kind of lane available at this point.
0: Yeah, and there could be some some serious uh, collateral damage from such a backlash, but but, uh, certainly a possibility. David Friedlander uh, of New York Magazine, thank you so much for joining us, and please come back to Max and Murphy soon.
1: Anytime. I appreciate it. Uh, We're excited to bring back to the show one of our favorite guests, Sally Goldenberg, Politico New York City Hall Bureau Chief. Sally, thanks for coming back on with us. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, we, we spent the bulk of the time with David on, you know, Scott Stringer situation because that's what David just wrote about for New York Magazine. So I want to talk with you about a lot of other dynamics in the race. But before we do that, um, how are you thinking about what's going on with Scott Stringer's scandal and his pushback and his vow to stay in the race, endorsers leaving him, some staying so far? Uh, how are you thinking about how that, how that scrambles the race?
2: Good question, and I guess we have to see whether his core base, you know, feels this has an effect. Um, you know, it's always an open question how much endorsers bring somebody by way of votes. So Scott Schringer has a base in Manhattan. He's been elected citywide uh, twice as comptroller, and he was elected many times in Manhattan as, uh, you know, a Assemblyman, Manhattan Borough President. So he has a solid base. And, you know, I couldn't tell you that I know exactly how they feel about the accusations because the base isn't the same as the progressive endorsers who abandoned him. Um, Mm. His base is the Upper West Side, and you see Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, who's part of that, did not leave. Um, You know, so I think that's telling. Now... And that's good for him. On the other hand, the Upper West Side is not enough to win an election. So how does he grow his electorate beyond his Manhattan base? And that is why he had these endorsers, right? Uh, Jessica Ramos in Queens, uh, Julia Salazar in Brooklyn, Jamal Bowman in Riverdale. You know, he was hoping to grow his natural base. Through these endorsers, they've pulled support because I think they're concerned about their own political futures and concerned about the allegations against uh, Stringer. But whether or not that translates into a loss of votes, or whether they were going to bring him votes, you know, I just don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that gets at a lot of, of what we're looking at here, which is the question of, you know, it might not lead that many people who are already Scott Schringer voters to abandon him, but it might really put a, a tough cap on his ability to expand. And, his you know, I think there were a lot of progressives who were maybe skeptical of him who liked these endorsers that he had, but now that they're not with him, they might really look elsewhere. And I think, you know, that leads me to my next question to you, which is, um, you know, it seems like. Uh, the, the, you know, Stringer clearly does not have momentum at this point. He had quite a bit of it building before this allegation landed. Uh, now he does not have momentum. In fact, going the other way as people abandoned him. Do you think any, anybody has momentum at this point? I mean, it seems to me Diane Morales certainly picked up some momentum because several of these Stringer, uh, endorsers who had her as number two are now kind of backing her as, as their number one. If, if they're not saying it, that's sort of just how it works. Uh, um, um, who do, do, do you think anybody has momentum at this point as we're sort of six, seven weeks yeah. out, we're looking at the debate next week, et cetera?
2: Yeah, a few people. I think on the left, Diane Morales, for sure. She, I think she was always a candidate who was more exciting to people who have uh, you know, pretty hardline progressive values than Scott Stringer was. His argument was always viability, um, but she definitely – is more aligned with that camp. And yes, I think it's fair to say she has momentum. I think, I think she had momentum even before this, you know, she Mm -hmm. got the number two ranking in the working families party. She's been picking up support. She has people, you know, show up to her events. She has a lot of individual donors. She hasn't uh, placed an ad by yet or gone on air, but she definitely has grassroots momentum in her campaign. Um, Andrew Yang's been kind of consistently in the lead. We just have a story that posted a few minutes ago that a poll we obtained shows Eric Adams actually edging Andrew Yang out of the lead by three points. Uh, It's an independent... It's a poll done by affirm for another candidate, not for either uh, Yang or Adams. So Eric Adams clearly is the momentum. And I think you're seeing a little boomlet for Catherine Garcia. She was in the New York Times. She was in the New Yorker. She's on air. She's getting more endorsements. She, you know, she has a steep hill to climb, but she definitely, from the perspective of like media and institutional support, which is important. It's not everything, but it's important. She seems to be on the upswing. Mm-hmm. So,
1: let's zoom out a little further. Um, you know, Jared and I, when we came on the air. Um, you know, we're talking a little bit about sort of where we see the state of the race. And, you know, I kind of said the only things I feel like I really know at this point are that I think the race is still very wide open. And I think, you know, Andrew Yang and Eric Adams, you'd rather be one of those two than anybody else um, at this point, but I'm not sure, you know, how much else I really feel strongly about that. I know. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people who've been developing narratives are about to see those blown up. And, And maybe that poll you just mentioned is, is leading in that direction. Although I don't think it'll be shocking to anybody if Eric Adams is ahead of andrew yang in in a in a poll or many polls, but um are there other things that you feel like you know fairly certain about right now or or things that seem clear i mean it, it does seem fairly clear that Scott Stringer's path to victory got a lot. Uh, narrower. Um, mm-hmm. Are there other other things that you're sort of thinking? At least right now, on the date we're talking, we're not going to hold you to any of this unless you unless you go out on the limb and make some predictions. Which I know <laughs> you, so I don't think you'll be doing that. But um, you know, what, what, what else do we think we know at this point?
2: Yeah, um, I think that for some part of the Democratic electorate, this is an election about who can best bring the city back from the brink, you know, being uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, who can bring businesses back, who can bring tourism back, who can straighten out the fiscal situation, who can bring the excitement back to the city. Andrew Yang has seen that concern and identified most consistently and most closely with it of any of the candidates, in my opinion. Um and if most people who vote on June 22nd have that in mind, I think that is very good for Andrew Yang. However, there's an increase in crime. There's a persistent homelessness problem. There's a nexus of those two things on the subways, which people are starting to ride in larger numbers. And there's a lot of concern that about about safety it's not just you know the front page of the new york post i think it seeps into general uh democratic voters households and i think if you're concerned about crime eric adams is making a case um You know, he was a police officer. He speaks a bit about police reform, less so for sure than he does about the rise in gun violence and crime. But, you know, he, as somebody who is a black man who himself speaks openly about being assaulted by police as a teen and was a police officer and is now running on that issue, he is the most closely identified, in my estimation, with a candidate who wants to deal with the rise in crime. So mm-hmm. I think... And polls have shown those are the two most pressing issues for people, crime and, you know, the pandemic kind of writ large, bringing the city back, getting vaccinated, which will be less of an issue as more people get vaccinated. So I think it really has to do with which issue is more important to more people. But I think that's why you see those two candidates, notably not somebody on the far left, not Diane Morales, not Maya Wiley, who leans farther left, not Scott Stringer, who has positioned himself in the camp of the farther left Democrats. Uh, they are not in the lead at all, you know, in any poll. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why. I think those are the two issues. I think those are the two candidates most closely identified with those two issues. So I guess if I were to make any prediction, it would be that, you know, one of those two issues, if they remain the prominent issue, the, the candidate who has successfully identified himself or herself most closely with it will benefit the most. Mm-hmm.
1: And what do we, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling a lot with the, you know, there's obviously this unique Stringer situation now. We've been talking about that. There's Yang and Adams who've seemed at the front of the pack. You know, it's worth noting, too, that Yang, Adams, and Stringer had by far, you know, the most name recognition in every poll with Yang, you know, well ahead of, of Adams and, and Stringer, even, um, even though they've been, you know, part of the city's political scene for decades. Um, and so these other candidates have a lot of catching up to do, uh, you know, on just introducing themselves to voters and I, you know, I've been thinking about what is, what does it take for a Maya Wiley, Sean Donovan? We haven't mentioned Ray McGuire. We haven't mentioned uh, Diane Morales and you mentioned Catherine Garcia you know this other group of candidates that you know really are are have not been well known at all uh, other than, you know behind those those first 3 what does it take for any of them to really break out and you know you think back to 2013 and Bill De Blasio's breakout but i don't know you know that we you know that that one race means a model for anything but how are you thinking about one of those candidates potentially breaking out what do you think You know, what do you think people need? What is what what should voters and listeners here, you know, know about how these races unfold now that you've you've covered a few of them?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think de Blasio, I don't want to belabor 2013, but de Blasio captured the zeitgeist. It's just that it didn't really crystallize until closer to Election Day. For a number of reasons. He had an ad that kind of uh, spoke to the issue. There was a federal court ruling on stop and frisk. Um, there were just a number of things. And then other candidates were really falling apart. And all of those things coalesced for him. But he always had the zeitgeist, you know. Um, and it was clear in hindsight what the zeitgeist in 2013 was. It was a reaction to Mike Bloomberg. It's less clear this time around, which is why I say it could be crime. It could be the sort of sense of unruliness in the city. Some people have. It could be just the let's bring the city back from COVID. But to quickly answer your question, I mean, I think Diane Morales does have a lot of momentum. I think that the progressive left is ascendant. I just don't think there are enough votes in that movement to overcome everybody else who votes in the democratic primary so that is what i think her problem is it's not that she's not an exciting candidate for a lot of people i just don't think i think there are a lot more people who are looking for something different than what she's saying we'll see i might be wrong but that's my sense of it from you know how the race has shaken out thus far you know i think sean donovan and ray mcguire have spent a lot of money introducing themselves to voters. They've spent millions of dollars between themselves and independent expenditures on their behalf. And they're pretty much consistently in middle single digits, maybe high single digits in every single poll. They're not really getting a lot of traction. That could change. Ray McGuire got some pretty prominent endorsements, you know, in Southeast Queens, Gregory Meeks and some others. Um, I think he's pretty close to Al Sharpton. That's you know that's definitely beneficial um for many people so he has a chance and i think he is um got some broad appeal but it ha- we haven't seen that we haven't seen him pick off yet Catherine Garcia has a kind of managerial message. I think she's the type of person people would be very comfortable with on January 1st, but when they go into the voting booth, they're looking for maybe a little more inspiration and excitement. I think all of that goes out the window once someone becomes mayor. They want someone who can pick up the trash and plow the snow and, and keep the trains on time, you know, so to speak. Right. Not literally because the trains are criminal responsibility, but you know what I mean. Right. But, you know, Catherine's issue is translating a government message to an exciting uh, primary election message. So those are the issues, you know, for the three of them. Maya Wiley is a, what I think she has the potential to be a consensus candidate for your sort of classic white liberal voter. She is, you know as a black woman. Um, has a lot of, you know, has a personal story and a lot of relationships and a life experience that speaks to many people. She got the endorsement of Congresswoman Beth Clark in 1199, a predominantly African-American union. She should be able to be a consensus candidate. She has not yet uh, performed uh what i think people were expecting her to perform as you know she's a first-time candidate and i think it shows in how she presents herself but she has the makings of someone who should be taking off it just it hasn't happened yet
1: Right. So speaking of, of, you know, the opportunities for that, we're obviously just over a week out from this first televised debate. I was saying to Jarrett earlier, again, being a little more skeptical that, you know, I don't know for a, for the first debate in in mid-May that we're, we're getting that many more people tuning in in some than, you know, have been the ones watching these Zoom forums, because those are the, you know, the sort of political junkies who are really into the race. And, you know, maybe we get a few additional tens of thousands of people for the first televised debate. Hopefully more. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, the the question more that I'm thinking about and, and asking you is, you know, we have this first debate, debate coming up. We have advertisements going up on air. What are some of the sort of markers of the campaign that you're watching for that could shift the playing field or – uh, you know that could really matter here there's some endorsements that maybe could still come in right i mean uh a o c hasn 't endorsed in the race she might not obviously um mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a number of other Jemani Williams. Jemani Williams. There's a number of other individuals and groups that we could point to. A lot have endorsed. Um, maybe we'll see some Scott Stringer folks reendorse. You know, people who've walked away might might choose somebody new. But um, are there other markers you're you're thinking about, or is it just you know the the campaign will sort of play out at faster speed here in the next few weeks, and then we'll get more polling and we'll have a better sense
2: yeah that's a good question. I mean, I think a o c is like undeniably a major endorsement. you know people would like to have that endorsement. I think Jamani Williams matters a lot and has you know kind of broad appeal. But endorsements in and of themselves are, you know, they're so, they're about somebody else. They're not about the candidate at the end of the day. I think barring an external matter, and let's just put that aside, you know, a major crime, a major attack, something bad happening or something really good happening, but barring that, which is hard to predict, which, you know, would affect the race, I think the debate will have a big impact because people are just starting to tune in, it would seem. And so seeing these candidates face off on TV three times before the primary should actually have an impact. I think we haven't seen most candidates go up with ads yet. So that would, you know, that would matter. Or, you know, a major scandal. But honestly, like what happened last week with Stringer's campaign, I would call that, um, you know, a big scandal, so to speak. And at least from the poll we reported today, it, it really didn't have any impact. Now, it's you know, and the poll was in the field for two days during that story. Now that, you know, let's see, it could change in a week or so. Right. The other thing that hasn't happened yet that I think might have an impact is if candidates start spending money or if independent expenditures start spending money on negative advertisements. You know, if all the news you're getting about um, Maya Wiley, for instance, is positive news that she's putting out, and by news, I'm sorry, I mean paid advertisements, not like news articles we write, which, you know, can be positive, negative, and everything in between. But if all the, like, advertisements you see about Maya Wiley are herself telling her story, That's one thing. But if somebody comes in with a big paid ad against her, against Andrew Yang, against Eric Adams, that really can shape, you know, it it can permeate and shape how people think about a person. So that's something else to watch
1: for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I am watching the Sean Donovan numbers in some of these initial polls, which, again, I don't I don't put a ton of credence into because I just don't think that many people are paying close attention. And we see that reflected in, in some of the undecided numbers. But, you know, they tell us a few things. And, you know, watching some of these Sean Donovan numbers creep up a little, watching the fact that his father is putting five million dollars and maybe more into this, you know, super PAC, IE, on his behalf. I I'm expecting some significant endorsements for Donovan from his federal experience. Now, I don't really expect Barack Obama to come in or Joe Biden, but who knows, you know, short of that, you know, so he I, I'm watching him a little bit. Um, and then Ray McGuire is obviously spending a ton of money as well and has a pack, also super PAC also. So that'll be interesting to see how all that spending plays out. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, about your sense of how all of Eric Adams' labor support may or may not impact the race. Do you have thoughts on that at this point? Do you get the sense that the significant number of labor unions that are backing him are really going to come through for him in a significant way?
2: A good question. Uh, I don't know yet. They haven't done they haven't done spending yet. They can. They have resources. Um, and you know, if they want to spend on the race, they can, and that would make a difference, I think. You know, unions are really helpful if they're organized in down ballot races like city council races because there's less ground to cover, so they can door knock, and you know, they can hand out lit at subway stops. They can canvass. Um, it's it's a little harder in a citywide race, and it's a lot harder during a pandemic. To do that sort of thing, I'm watching for an independent expenditure from 1199 for My Wiley. Right. They have, you know, they're a big union with a lot of resources. Just, just about to
1: mention her and them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, yeah. they should probably do an IE for her, an independent expenditure on her behalf. If they're all in for her, they have. I think they have. I mean, I haven't checked their finances recently, but typically they have the resources to do that. Eric Adams has. A bunch of – he has three prominent unions, right? He's uh DC37, the Hotel Trades Council, and uh 32BJ, which is Building Service Workers. So if those three unions pooled their resources or each did their own independent expenditure, you know, I think, of course, it would help. Um, the UFT, the teachers, could do an independent expenditure for Scotch Stringer. They have a lot of money. They could do an independent expenditure for him. They're one of the um, groups that did not pull their endorsement from Stringer after the accusation surfaced last week.
1: Indeed. All right. Well, we um, we really appreciate you joining us again. Sally Goldenberg, Political New York bureau chief. There's so many other things um, we could chat about, but we're unfortunately out of time. Here you've been covering the race uh better than anybody it hurts me a little bit to say that but i have to thank you (laughs) so um, everybody read everything that sally's uh doing at politico new york And, and sally thanks for joining us
2: okay thank you very much
1: all right talk to you soon so Jarrett, we're uh, in our last few minutes here, but we had a couple of great conversations with David Friedlander and Sally Goldenberg. Um, anything from those conversations, or just other thoughts you've been uh, been thinking here during this hour?
0: Been incubating. I mean, I think so much there to, to to pick into, but I think the article that Sally referred to, which came out, I think, after our show began, about this uh, new survey she's seen, showing Eric Adams in lead um, with Yang uh, behind him. And and Scott Stringer, frankly, not too far behind Yang, 11% undecided, which is not a huge number. um, Again, for first round votes, what really strikes me about the article, and folks could look for it on Politico.com, is that you have Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire rounding out the top five, which means that none of the three women in the candidate in the race, who you know have been receiving, uh, I think, a little more attention. Sally mentioned the kind of boomlet of interest in Catherine Garcia. Maya Wiley was some big endorsement. And uh, Dan Morales benefiting perhaps most directly from Scott Stringer's troubles over the past week, uh, not breaking in. Obviously, just one survey, still early, and just a poll. But um, but that would really be striking, I think, if uh, if none of the women candidates in this year uh, end up being uh, among the the kind of leaders of this race. I would be mm-hmm. I would be surprised by that, and, and frankly, I'd be a little disturbed by that. But but again, it's just mm-hmm. one survey.
1: Yeah, that that that's definitely a very interesting theme to think about. I mean, I am expecting Maya Wiley to to grow her support at some point. I don't know about takeoff. Um, you know, I, I do think it'll be interesting after some momentum for Morales and Garcia to see, you know, what we see as as polls continue to come out. But I also, you know, also think um, there's several, at least several more weeks of of the campaign to unfold before polls that I'll think really matter, which would be, you know, again, in, in June, uh, early June. But, um, but, but they all, they keep telling us different things. And one of the things I think that's about to happen, um, which I've been kind of waiting for is this idea that Eric Adams is maybe the actual front runner in the race. And, and Andrew Yang is not, uh, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think given all the labor support behind Adams and the fact that, you know, Yang came in riding, high on name recognition and a, and a general sense of likability that you know these things make a lot of sense given you know he's an affable guy he's energetic he you know wanted to give people money in his presidential campaign he was on CNN after that etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but you know that that people are starting to really look closer at all the candidates and and that's where you know I think um, You know, there's there's questions. The New York Times obviously had an expose on Yang's nonprofit uh, that has really underperformed expectations and so forth. So once the conversation around the race is a little bit less, you know, Andrew Yang is almost a sure thing to win, which I think was a silly narrative. And maybe more maybe Eric Adams is the is the leading candidate. You know, that that's going to change a lot.
0: Um, And I'm interested to see where that goes. Please have a great week in the greatest city in the world.